Welcome to Out of the Blank. to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Chris, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Of course, it's 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 it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you ever so much for, um, for, for, for the invitation to talk to you about all things intelligence and, and espionage. Um, so my name is, is Christopher Moran, although please call me Chris. It's only, it was only my mother who ever called me Christopher, and that tended to be... Uh, uh, occasions when perhaps I've been a little bit naughty and sort of the Christopher was always sort of rolled out for a little bit of extra extra emphasis. So uh, I'm Chris Moran. Um, I work in the uh, in the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Warwick, um, where my title is is Professor of, of U.S. National Security. What do I do at Warwick? Well, I I research and write on the history of British and American secret services. Um, right now, for, for the last 10 years, I've been, um, been researching a new book on the relationship between Richard Nixon and the Central Intelligence Agency, um, having a look at how, the phrase that I use, having a look at how Nixon used, misused and abused the CIA, that's probably uh, the, the, the most accurate description I can give, certainly in shorthand. Um, but I've got a general, you know, I write and I teach general, generally on, 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 on CIA history, um, history of, of Britain's intelligence agencies as well. I've started to dip my toes into the water of some other intelligence agencies as well. Um, one of the big things in the in the discipline of intelligence studies right now is to is to try to escape the Anglosphere. Um, so much historical writing about intelligence um, relates almost exclusively to British and American intelligence, but but right now we're we're trying to escape the Anglosphere a little bit. You know, we're we're desperate to discover. You know, what does the Congolese intelligence agencies agency do? What does uh, the security apparatus of Ghana look like? What does the intelligence agency of South Africa get up to um, with, with taxpayers' dollars? So it's a fun area to be working in at the moment, and it's always great to, to have a chat with people like yourself. Has anybody ever checked to see what the NSA does? Like, that's one thing when looking through, I, I would, you would probably think that I'd be more interested in the CIA, which I have an interest in, but I probably learned more from guests from the FBI's perspective on things, um, just because Hoover is a name that kind of stands out throughout American history because um, of his, I mean, he was involved in so much stuff, but to the Nixon point. Now, Nixon and the CIA, I'm not too familiar. I know at one point he tried to pressure Hoover and his FBI or trying to create an FBI, but then he eventually created his own. Because Hoover rejected him and everyone's like, oh, you could tell that Nixon, I had Jeff Shepard on who defended Nixon and like Watergate and all that. And I asked him, I go, what do you think about like, you know, did Hoover know Nixon just didn't like him? And he goes, well, I mean, if you look at what Hoover's background was kind of doing at the time, you could only think that he didn't want to spread his FBI a little too thin. And I go, 
that makes a lot more sense. But I mean, I've known Nixon, I think gets recorded throughout history as being like this guy that everyone kind of hated. It seemed like he was mad for power. And I do believe that he was definitely mad for power, but I also, I believe that's just, if you put certain people in that position, you're probably more than likely going to be corrupt. If you can find out, you can easily hire a squad to spy on an ex-girlfriend or something like that. I, 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 when the book eventually comes out, I'd, I'd love to come back and, and spend hours with you talking about this 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 particular story because, um, as I say, I've been researching it for ten years. I'll be finishing off the writing for the next five. But but very briefly, as as Nixon, when Nixon was vice president, when he was Eisenhower's number two during the nineteen fifties, he had actually quite a close relationship with the CIA, and. While he was never in love with the CIA, while he was never completely in awe of, of the CIA, during the 1950s, he, 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 he valued their work. He valued the intelligence analysis that, um, that, that, that was arriving on his desk. And actually there um, in, in his office up on Capitol Hill, he, he would routinely have uh, a CIA officer seconded to his office to provide sort of you know daily briefings to to Nixon but but the reason why Nixon really valued the agency in the 50s was because this was the time when um, when the agency was first starting to cut its teeth in the covert action side of the intelligence business remember when you when you have an agency like the CIA there's there's two sides to the house there's the there's the side of the house that that resembles almost a, a kind of a secret university this is the side of the house that um, collects intelligence, processes intelligence, analyzes intelligence, and then disseminates that intelligence to, 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 to policymakers and, and military personnel. But then the other side of the house is the covert action side of the house, the, the covert operators who are tasked by the White House to meddle in the domestic affairs of, of, of foreign states. In the 50s, Nixon had a good relationship with the CIA because this was the era where the CIA um, was performing covert action in, 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 in Iran, famously, in 1953. Nixon was completely in support of that. Um, this was the period when the CIA was doing things in Guatemala. Nixon completely supported that. This was the period when the CIA was... Um, uh, starting to work in what you might call the cultural Cold War field, um, recognizing you know, recognizing that the CIA was as much an ideal, uh, recognizing that the Cold War was as much an ideological conflict as it was a as as it was a sort of battle of visions and a battle of ideologies, battle of militaries. The CIA started to create links with um, journalists, with artists, with musicians in a bid to win those Cold War hearts and minds. Nixon loved all that. So he had a fairly decent relationship with the agency in the 50s. But absolutely every everything changed with um, his defeat to President Kennedy uh, in, in, in the presidential election in, in 1960. And it, and it changed for a number of reasons. One Nixon felt that um, Nixon was convinced that um, CIA director Alan Dulles favored JFK in that in that presidential race. And because Alan CIA director Alan Dulles favored JFK, uh, Alan Dulles had taken the opportunity to brief, inaccurately brief candidate Kennedy about a so-called missile gap that Nixon and Eisenhower had allowed to develop with, with the Soviet Union. 
There was no missile gap, or rather there was, but the Americans were way ahead of the Soviet Union. But Nixon felt that that was not what Dulles had briefed Kennedy, which then Kennedy had, 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 had exploited on the electoral hustings. He sort of said to the American public, you know, despite his bravado um, on Nixon's watch, the Americans have fallen behind. You know, he's not the Cold Warrior. Cold Warrior, you think he is? Ergo, vote for me. So Nixon, Nixon hated the CIA for that. He also hated the CIA because he also felt that, um, that that Dulles had been a little bit too forthcoming to candidate Kennedy about what Nixon was encouraging the CIA to do with respect to Cuba at the time. So obviously Fidel Castro had come to power. Um, Kennedy on the electoral on the political hustings was essentially saying that. Um, that Nixon and Eisenhower were not doing enough, were not doing enough to, pr to protect America's southern flank, were not doing enough to destabilize the Castro regime. Uh, as Kennedy knew, because he'd been tipped off by Dulles, the opposite was actually the case. Already plans were in motion for, for what would become the Bay of Pigs um, operation in April 1961. But it put Nixon in a, in a real kind of catch-22 situation uh, because he couldn't publicly reject Kennedy's claim, he couldn't say to Kennedy, uh, and by extension, the American public, and by extension, Fidel Castro, yeah, we're planning the Bay of Pigs here, we're planning, you know, covert operations against Cuba. So Nixon, Nixon hated um, uh, Dulles for, for, for that. And then there was this third layer. Then there was this third layer that came out of the 1960 presidential elections. So who was Nixon ultimately defeated by in 1960? He was beaten by Kennedy darling of the East Coast Ivy League establishment, an individual who um, was born, you know, to the manner born, an individual with, in Nixon's eyes, you know, a silver spoon in his mouth. And the CIA got caught up in, 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 in Nixon's angst about all of that, because at the time, CIA recruitment practices um, tended to favour the old boy network, tended to favour the East Coast Ivy League establishment, precisely the type of, of group that, 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 that Kennedy um, personified, that, 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 that Kennedy symbolised. So there was this real sort of social dimension, a Brit would call it a sort of a class-based dimension to, to Nixon's hostility towards the CIA. And he carried that through, he carried that through throughout his wilderness years in the 1960s when he was out of office and he carried it through to the very moment when he arrived in the White House as president in, in January 1969. And then that relationship with the CIA was extremely turbulent and we, we can chat about if you like, if the chat about that if you like, was extremely turbulent and troubled for the um, five years or so that Nixon was in office. Very interesting learning how much, I guess, turbulence there was in those times, only because there is a conspiracy theory out there. I've had a couple. It's Daniel P. Sheehan's theory um, about the Watergate burglars, which was that the plan to assassinate Castro was actually something of Nixon's idea that he was going to use to help win the election. Um, and it didn't work, obviously, because Castro lived until he was in his 90s and obviously Kennedy beat Nixon. But uh, when they arrested Howard Hunt or one of these Watergate burglars, he had a receipt in his pocket that said Banco Internacional. I don't know the full specifics of this. I've had a couple people explain it. When he was vice, yeah, when he was vice president, Nixon was fully briefed into um, uh, CIA Cuban operations. Um, 
the CIA's inspector, the declassified CIA's inspector general report into the uh, into the Bay of Pigs fiasco of April 1961. It's redacted in places, but 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 those volumes that report makes it clear really from late. I think it was early 59. Nixon was being briefed um, by, amongst others, Frank Wisner, a uh, CIA, you know, uh, covert action supremo. He, Nixon was being briefed by Wisner and others into exactly the sort of things that um, the CIA were planning with respect to Latin America. And, and, and the same thing with Hillary Clinton and versus D Donald and Nixon, Trump. Nixon was entirely in support of it. There, there's one line that sticks in my, in my mind. There's one line where... Um, in in the inspector general's report and i'm quoting here when nixon says you really need to be uh you, re you really need to be using goon squads i always remember that phrase goon squads you need to be paying off and using goon squads in cuba to destabilize castro that's uh well that's one of the theory i haven't like i said that gets too much into the who for me before i kind of just trying to get what we could document now but that's what Tucker carlson i mentioned you off air had mentioned the mk ultra stuff well just recently when we we're recording this he had mentioned that thing with nixon and meetings with richard helms and more of daniel p sheehan's theory which was that the same names that get brought up in the kennedy assassination might have been hired by nixon because there are some off-branded quotes that he says about you know, don't want to tear up that scab and all the pus come out and we don't want to relive the whole Bay of Pigs thing. I mean, that's something that came out of Nixon's mouth and then people speculate what's on that tape. I don't think he did it. I can show you a lot of things when you look at Nixon to be like he was just really he kind of see it how we do with the intelligence services that they work for the president. And Nixon thought I can do with these intelligence services, whatever the hell I want, because I'm the leader in chief. And that's not really how it works when you kind of boil down the intelligence services. Nixon had a really tense relationship with, with CIA director uh, Richard Helms. And, and, and in a number of meetings, we know that, that, that Nixon made very telling, very chilling remarks about the Bay of Pigs to Richard Helms, a, a real kind of veiled threat. So um, actually, this came up in in this isn't just conspiracy here. This is here in the in in Richard Helms's memoir, A Look Over My Shoulder, which was obviously vetted by the CIA. So it was only published with the CIA's blessing. Um, Richard Helms describes the moment in the days after um, the Watergate break in where um, where Helms was called to Camp David, I think, by, by Richard Nixon. Might have been the White House, but I think it was Camp David. And um, Nixon says to Helms, you, you've got to stop this. <laughs> you, you, you've got to try and, with whatever power you've got vested in you as both the director of the CIA and the DCI, you need to nip this Watergate thing in the bud immediately. And you need to do that firstly by... Um, using some of your unvouchered appropriations to basically pay the bail money for the Watergate burglars just to get them out of the United States, you know, so they can't be uh, incarcerated and, and questioned. But secondly, we need you, Richard Helms, to, um, to, to lean on the FBI here, lean on the FBI really hard, encourage them just to stop investigating this whole, uh, this whole burglary. And when Helms, uh, actually to his enormous credit said you know mr president i'm not comfortable with that that's that's not the job of cia directors here nixon we know according to helms's memoir and also according to the diaries of his uh, of, of of his own aide uh, bob haldeman we know at that moment nixon started making all sorts of threats about the bay of pigs saying oh you know 
Dick, unless you sort of stop this investigation, who knows what's going to come out about about the Bay of Pigs. So it was a real um, Bay of Pigs, clearly a sore point for the agency. Um, but Nixon's full knowledge of that and, and how he then weaponized his possible knowledge of that during the Watergate, um, during the early days of Watergate is fascinating. Do you think he would have got away with it if it wasn't for the whole Watergate stuff? Like if it was 10 years earlier, I'd have to think with the buildup of how many people, especially with the Vietnam War and things of that sort, were kind of heading more towards the idea of transparency in government or just wanting their government to stop whatever the hell they, they were doing. I would think that if Nixon was 10 years earlier, if he would have won during Kennedy's administration, we wouldn't have had Kennedy. We wouldn't have ever been looked at at Nixon as this horrible figure throughout history. Possible. Yeah. I mean, Nixon Nixon came to office as, as president, um, at, you know, at the start of a real activist phase on Capitol Hill. Um, so if you, you know, just to think back to the 1950s. Uh, when it come when it came to sensitive intelligence matters and sensitive national security matters, up on the hill, the attitude of 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 so many uh, people on various committees was, you know, we 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 sign the checks, no questions asked. Um, he, hear no evil, see no evil. That was the attitude of so many senators and representatives in the fifties and early sixties. You know, if if Alan Dulles or any of his successors walked up to an appropriations committee hearing and said, I need a little bit more money. You know, the response of the senator was, well, we'll give you that and we'll give you an extra 20%, you know, because we, we trust that you're honorable men and we trust that you'll, you'll, you'll do a good job. You're, you, we trust that you're keeping the United States safe. But of course, in the light of the Vietnam War and in, in the light of revelations around um, the My Lai massacre, in the light of, um, in the light, obviously, of it coming out that successive governments and, and key figures had been lying about the Vietnam War, had been lying about um, the number of American casualties, had been lying about the fact that I mean, uh, LBJ and Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense, for years, they kept saying, you know, victory is at hand, victory is at hand. Well, after the Tet Offensive, it was clear that the victory wasn't uh, at hand. So Nixon comes to office at, at a phase when... Um, Capitol Hill is on high alert and, and, and is, is going through, has returned to a real kind of activist phase in its history, which wasn't there in the 50s and early 60s. And then, of course, Nixon also came to office when you might argue that the sort of the, the muckraking tradition of American investigative journalism had started to, to return. And again, this contrasts completely with the 50s and, and, and early 1960s, the era of the Cold War consensus, where actually, if you look at it, there was remarkable, what I would call sort of social homogeneity, social alignment between the press corps, between the media and people who were in government. So people who were in government, people who were in agencies like the CIA in the 1950s, where did they come from? They came from Harvard, they came from Yale, they came from Princeton. Uh, where did where did the senior you know where did the main journalists of the fifties come from? Well, they too came from Harvard, Princeton, Yale, and I think there was there was a sort of unspoken, unwritten pact between the press and senior figures in government that you know we're all friends here, we're all friends here, and we don't tell tales out of school. Well, that's Operation Mockingbird. Yeah, but then you know you fast forward. Yeah, then you fast forward to you know, the, 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 the 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 late sixties, early nineteen seventies, and that sort of um, 
that clubbable, friendly, gentlemanly alliance between agencies like the CIA and um, the American press corps, it had, it, it, it had broken down. It had broken down. I'm, obviously, some of my examples might just be from the Kennedy assassination. That doesn't mean we need to talk about it. But there is, if you look up Operation Mockingbird, which is getting kind of all your media assets in line, um, you know, the government working with the media, whether it's reporting. It says it lasted four months on, I think, if you really look it up and like Google, it, I think it's from 63. That's the year that it ended. The year it started and year it ended. Mm. Well, in the 2022 release, the most recent release of JFK documents in 1965, I have a document that states that get all your media assets. And it talks about the exact basically thing that they do with Operation Mockingbird. And I'm like, well, this is two years later. And I'm like, they said it ended in 63 and it brings up questions. And I think just through looking through the Watergate stuff and also looking in more into the church committee, I start wondering the whole time I'm reading the church committee report and you're learning about the CIA on college campuses, you're learning about so much that's going on. I go, but was it a whitewash? And people go, what do you mean? Exposed so much. I'm like, yeah, but being exposed is one thing, but then paying a price is another. I think you need to understand that your intelligence agencies are probably up to a lot of stuff, much like everybody's intelligence agencies are up to stuff. But then there was a thing of like, what happened at the ending of the like he asked William Colby, he goes, can we publish how much money you guys are making or your actual budget or something like that? William Colby just goes, I don't think we need to do that. Now, I've spoken to John Ranley, who wrote the book on CIA and uh, like stuff that's going on in their intelligence committee. Oh, you spoke to John Ranley. He's amazing. He is awesome. His book that there's two. As far as I'm concerned, there's two definitive histories of the CIA and they're both. 30 years old now plus um but they're still the best that's john ranelagh's book the agency and then christopher andrew's book for the president's eyes only american presidents and secret intelligence i'm, I'm so pleased that you spoke to john well i he's he was friends with william colby and i asked him i go i think what william colby did was a great thing but um I, it's how these intelligence agencies kind of look and just as an aside i asked him like do you think william colby's death was suspicious and he goes honestly i do he's like i, I put a lot of weight into about that the boating accident here the yeah. kayak in the middle of the night and he's that was suspicious to him and i go well okay i mean obviously that's spec uh whatever that's speculation it's perspectives there but it was just interesting to hear like someone that actually knew william colby um you know say something like that and he's done great work on the cia i love him but Back to the main point when it comes to the intelligence agencies and how they view, a lot of people think, well, if you know, the president probably runs all these agencies, but that's kind of these agencies don't really coordinate with each other. They kind of do their own work. And like, I mean, you can look through so many documents of like, I think the FBI is holding back a document from us. I'm like, aren't you guys supposed to be like all a part of America? Or like you guys are supposed to be working together. It's not how it works. But what I started to notice, which was a danger, which is how the agency views itself in the eyes of the public. I've come across plenty of documents that say, I mean, documents on JFK, the movie, documents on Platoon, documents on books that are being written about the CIA, yeah, about the FBI. Sort of military entertainment complex. Yeah, you could get into that if you wanted to. Yeah. Well, they literally go like, uh, this is going to be an embarrassment. And then you come to the Watergate part with the Phoenix program and a bunch of stuff that we found out through William Colby that he exposed. William Colby's attempts to embarrass the agency, our reputation will never recover from this, are some headlines and quotes. 
where you're like, hold on a second. That's not good if those agencies are thinking of you in that way, whether you get fired or not. I mean, does that open up the door for anyone who might be involved in the CIA to want to expose maybe some horrible things that are going on? I mean, to me, if I had a job and I was about to get a good government pension and they're telling me that I'm embarrassing them by making statements like Hale Boggs and 71 about Hoover wiretapping people – they had to pull him aside after that and be like, you can't talk about our director here like that. And I'm like, well, where's the accountability then? And I like, I get it, but I think like it, to me, it's pissed me off so bad because our public is so disconnected from it where it's like, you mentioned a heart attack gun and dude, I thought that was a conspiracy. And then I watched the video and then you see Frank church look down and I'm like, bro, what are we talking? But those are like real. And it, to me, it's, it is, it's funny because it's like they're the craziest stuff doesn't mean everything is like, conspiracy or crazy but we got to be very careful because there are real conspiracies out there and like i want the public to kind of notice that as well too it's like the church committee reports like i think should be basic reading in school just so people are aware of like yeah the government's up to stuff but it's not just us it just has to be taught in a proper form so where you don't turn into an anarchist because you don't want that that's that's twice as bad I mean, you 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 open up the conversation about the CI and the public, and that and that's absolutely fascinating because um, for a long time, and still to some extent today, but certainly um, for a long time, the CIA's attitude was very much analogous to the attitude of the British monarchy today. When there's a scandal, um, when when the finger of blame is being being pointed at us, when there's some uh, nasty revelations going out there in public public discourse. Our responses never explain, never complain. The shutters come down, and 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 that that philosophy w w was very much personified by that figure of CIA director Richard Helms. You know, hence his his nickname, the man who kept the secrets. Um, in the in 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 the hours uh, after the 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 the, the Watergate um, break in, and as the drumbeat of the scandal continued over the over the following months and years, Helms issued directives to all of his CIA employees just saying stay the hell away from this you know do not comment on any of this because the moment you say something the moment you utter a single word the public will want more um the appetite grows with the eating um it will be impossible to to to, to pull the shutters down ever again but Colby, who, who, who you were doing a deep dive into uh, a moment ago, he, he subscribed to, you, you might call it a more progressive outlook. He worried that the more the, 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 the CIA stayed silent, in effect, that that vacuum of silence would, would be filled by conspiracy theorists. It would be filled by sensationalist accounts of investigative journalists. It would be filled by... Hollywood depictions, wild Hollywood depictions of mindless assassins, and and Colby really worried that he really worried about the 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 the, the damaging effects that a bad public profile would have on the agency. He worried that if the CIA had a really bad public reputation, it would fail to attract the best new recruits. He worried that if the CIA had a bad public rec reputation people on Capitol Hill, the Appropriations Committee, people would, would start asking more penetrating questions. He worried that they would stop signing the checks. He worried that if the CIA had a bad public profile, actually the policymaking community, the policymaking community that the CIA 
is is ultimately there to serve that policy making community would start to question or even critique its assessments its judgment Ken, um colby was very concerned about that so um did he have a pr department yeah so what what happened is um the CIA has always had a, a really dating back to the late forties, early early fifties, has always had a had a had a had a public affairs office. But for the first twenty years of its existence, the job of the the public affairs office was to sort of uh, pick up the phone and say no comment, and that and that and that would be it. Um, occasionally, the the person the person asking the, the the question on the other end of the phone would be invited to um, Alan Dulles's residence for, for a nice dinner, a nice cocktail party, and Alan Dulles would set them straight. But that was the extent of CIA public affairs. But then after the Church Committee hearings and in the era of Colby, you get a new CIA director come in called Stansfield Turner, who tries to pursue um, a new relationship with the press, a new relationship with the public, so starts allowing certain CIA officers, and I'm putting the emphasis on certain CIA officers, to publish books, to speak to the press, to take up positions on, 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 on university campuses. Stansfield Turner um, also agrees to sign off on the declassification of, 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 of certain CIA documents for the first time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, 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 but the... the, 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 the um, that public the the, the record or, or or the um that the success the record of that public affairs office has sort of waxed and waned through the decades depending on who who's in charge at the top who's in charge at cia but also who's in charge uh in in the white house so by the time the 1980s comes around and you get reagan in the white house and you get um CIA director Bill Casey in, in charge over at Langley. Casey, an old OSS hand, the shutters come down again. The public affairs office is sort of largely put out to pasture for 10 years. But then fast forward to the peace dividend in the 90s and the public affairs office becomes, you know, more, more, more active again. But Colby, Turner, um, a former chairman of, of, of the CIA's publications review board that vets memoirs for, for, for public release, uh, very nice guy called John Hollister Headley. They they're sort of the anti-Helms faction. They're they're part of a breed of, of of intelligence officer that believes that it's highly, highly, highly dangerous for the CIA to sit there in silence and allow um, public discourse to to become replete with sort of toxic, damaging revelations about the agency. So it's just interesting to me that you brought up that topic of, of the CIA and the public. Where do you feel that you side with the most? Because I find it difficult because I do think th that there needs to be secrecy. I just don't know what their terms of secrecy are. Like it's through my conversations like with the uh, John Sunheim, Judge Sunheim for the AARB, where I go, why do we not have the documents on the Kennedy assassination? It's been so long. We should have them by now. He goes, I agree. He goes, but there's only two reasons why that there would ever keep declassification or keep documents. And that was because someone was still alive. And he goes, in this case, that's not it at all. And I go, then what's the second option? And he goes, if they're using a tactic that they used back then, and then it brings up answers of what's going on in Mexico City, which is anybody that I've talked to about intelligence agencies to talk about Mexico City was like a place that it was the spies playground. And I'm like, what? And then it's like brings weird clouded questions on what are we talking about? It could be an operation that could still be active today. I'm not talking about assassination. I'm just talking about propaganda tactics. I mean, 
it's funny if you talk about the multiple CIA directors and the kind of the who's in charge of the PR department. Look at the FBI. It's the one I probably know most about. The influence into movies. I mean, when the FBI came on screen, Hoover made a deal with these Hollywood directors. I mean, it creates the whole Hollywood 10 looking for communists and labeling people as communists that might not be communists it leads into the blacklist. But Hoover found a way to work with these Hollywood producers. And he goes, if you're going to incorporate the FBI into the movie, I'm doing this, my Hoover impression, but I take a deep breath and I start going. But he goes, what you do is the I'll FBI. Do my Nixon impression later. <laughs> when the FBI <laughs> comes my on screen. Kissinger one better, actually. <laughs> he goes, when the FBI comes on screen, uh, the bad guys can shoot as much as they want, but they have to miss. Uh, and it was just really small little rules. And it's kind of like when I started realizing after learning about this, I'm like, oh, my God, that's why whenever I think the FBI comes on screen, I go, oh, the badasses are here. It's because Hoover did that from the start. He knew that our image is going to be displayed through movies. It's going to be displayed through media. It's going to be displayed through all this. So he just found a way to work it in there. And then he started getting really good relationships, whether it was blackmail or anything like that with the Hollywood directors, Warner Brothers, a bunch of people. And he literally found certain actors uh, that he would portray FBI figures and he would go make sure they didn't have any scandals on them, no drinking. They had to be married, uh, no homosexual acts, which is weird because, dude, that rumor about Hoover, I can tell you through documents that I've seen. He was the only person out of all the review profiles he did for employee applications. Clyde Tolson's the only one ever that got a 100% great, excellent work on everything. And that's the one that they rumored Hoover was with, where there's even a document from other FBI agents talking about they suspect something's going on with Clyde and Hoover, but they never suspected anything homosexual or anything, which is fine now. But back then it was like he was finding homosexuals and deporting that he was doing a bunch of crazy stuff where I go, he was being a, I wouldn't, what is it? A hypocrite. Yeah. He was being a bit of a hypocrite, but I kind of noticed how they were influencing movie scripts and the things that they were looking for were communism, homosexuality, drug offenses, drinking offenses, domestic violence, really simple stuff. Cause they wanted their FBI agents to be a hundred percent, no scandals. And they even found people that eventually would get a scandal, had the Hollywood department keep that scandal away from the press. So much so that when these actors eventually wrote biographies after they had been kicked out, like one person got on the blacklist and then got taken off of it and then got put back on it like a couple months later, he wrote a whole biography explaining they kept my scandals away. I was doing this forever, but they kept it away from the media. They kept it away from the strippers, all that type of stuff. And then it came out later when he got back on the blacklist where it was like, what power do they have? And that's just because the dude was displaying as like agents in movies. And it's like, that's crazy to see those connect. Sorry, that was an aside. I ranted. No, it's great. I mean, in, in answer to, to your question, it would probably be a fairly lengthy answer. You know, what, what should the CIA be releasing? What should it be saying about itself? I, th I think my opening point would be it, it has to say something. It has to say something. Um, it is ultimately funded by the American taxpayer, and ultimately we live in a in, in a democracy here. The the taxpayer needs um, some insight, some insight. And we'll discuss that that in a moment. But it needs some insight into 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 how those um, taxpayers' dollars are 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 being spent. That's the nature of a, of a, of a, of, a, of a healthy functioning democracy as, 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 as I see it. Um, the public, I think, is entitled to, um, to, 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 to know, you know, is, is the CIA operating according to its chartered responsibilities? 
the public is entitled to know um, whether the, the, the CIA has a point in its history strayed from those chartered responsibilities. At the very least, at the very least, um, the um, the overseers, the oversight committees on 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 Capitol Hill, uh, I would argue that they certainly have ha, ha, have a right to uh, to know what the CIA is doing in in certain moments. Um, my second point might, would be, you know, as I see it, common sense is 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 important here. Um, it is, you know, it's not common sense as I see it to be withholding. Um, uh, information about something that's a hundred years old in vintage. Uh, it's very, very, very unlikely that there will be a particular intelligence collection method or a particular bit of spy craft or a particular, you know, intelligence technique that was, uh, that was used in, you know, 1947 or 1948 that can't be declassified today. May, you know, e even the identity of, of certain intelligence officers from that era, can we really not reveal that today? I mean, I, I, I get it, I get the counter argument, you know, there are, uh, there are enemies out there, there are hostile intelligence actors that have very, very, very long memories in some cases and wouldn't think twice perhaps about, you know, seeking retribution against some of the 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 the, the, the sort of um, the children and the, the the grandchildren of these people. But come on, you know, eighty years when eighty years has passed, should we really be 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 concealing those those identities? I'd need to see a really super compelling case. Are you talking to, about the Kennedy assassination? Well, I'm I'm just going back generally to to um, intelligence activities from that very very early Cold War period, late 1940s. So intelligence officers, perhaps, who were involved in CIA meddling in Italian elections in 48, 49. John McCone? Uh, yeah, I mean, McCone became CIA director. I'm, I'm thinking as well about some of the people that sort of cut their cloth in in in, in the cultural Cold War campaigns of the 50s, Guatemala, uh, 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 Iran in 53. Do we, do we really need to be... Um, having a sort of religious devotion to the secrecy of those identities anymore? I think not. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to be convinced otherwise. I guess maybe the identity of some of these people who are involved in the Iran coup in 53, that could be tricky, perhaps, given the current state of, of, of US uh, Iranian uh, re re relations. But I think common, common sense is, 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 is key here. Um, but I do recognise that that you know, live intelligence operations, providing they are, providing the overseers on Capitol Hill have determined that those live intelligence operations are ethical, that they've been signed off by the relevant authorities, and and are proportionate to to the threat to which um, the United States currently finds itself. I get it that those operations require a, a degree of secrecy. I, I, I do believe that. And it might be that you can't, you know, obviously you can't reveal the details of those operations in real time, you know, that that could cause damage to national security. It you know, could have dire consequences to the lives of the people who, who are involved in that intelligence activity. But the point then, the, the, the rub of this comes really is, at, at what point do you disclose um, details of that operation or that particular intelligence activity? Is it five years, 10 years? Is it 50 years or 100 years? But but I, I, I think my ultimate bottom line would be 
there's very little justification for for absolute secrecy in in perpetuity you know there surely is not an intelligence secret out there that should be kept for 200 years or even 100 years it just strikes me as being excessive and the problem is when intelligence agencies do that and when they've been proven to have done that it just fuels conspiracy doesn't it it fuels a skeptic a skepticism among certain members of the public that what's actually being concealed there is not a genuine national security secret is not something that would um damage american uh, diplomacy in the 21st century is not something that would undermine sources and methods the skepticism then becomes actually the american government or the cia in this question is covering up something that would be politically embarrassing to itself because it perhaps relates to an incident of wrongdoing or whatever it is illegality if i give you an example you can correct me if you don't agree with it but i kind of view it like the reason why we need to know some parts of the secrecy like i get there needs to be secrets but the issue starts to become is when you live in a world of secrets the guideline or the goalpost tends to move and then you really what i think william colby was viewing not just on an aspect of like you know the government should be aware or people should be aware of some of the stuff that we're doing i think he was also noticing of like how it can go bad when you just live in a bubble and that bubble tends to keep expanding and expanding out like if you're working from the cia in the beginning someone tosses a paper on your desk and says hey we're gonna do you know wiretap some people you're like what wiretapping people that sounds terrible it's like yeah well you know we got to do it okay well it's foreign right we're not doing it domestically not doing it domestically no then a year two years later you start doing it domestically then later it goes a little bit darker than that and then you just start getting so deep that you totally forget where your base was and you forget what's right and what's wrong you've lost the sense of what the public would view immoral or ethically wrong Kind of an example that I would give would be your kid. If you have a kid and you tell him, hey, don't leave the driveway with his bike or whatever, he doesn't leave his driveway for his bike until what? He asks you, can I go down to the end of the street? All right, you can go down to the end of the street. Then it goes from the end of the street to his friend's house and then from his friend's house to outside of town. So next thing you know, he's going out wherever the hell he wants. It's just it just slowly over time builds up and builds up to the point where you keep expanding and expanding out. And that's kind of where I view what the area of secrecy. I think I think it's a great point. I think um, I, I think there's several layers to this. I think you know, too much secrecy is dangerous because obviously, who who, who knows what's being what's being hidden here? There there, there might be wrongdoing um, being being genuinely covered up. I I I, I get that absolutely. You know, um, but also too much secrecy is just it's costly, man. It's seriously costly financially. and it actually can lead to inefficiency in 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 government. Um, I think I think I'm correct. In, this was reported back in 2013, and and the figure I'm about to give you is um, has probably grown since then. But back in 2013, it was revealed by a journalist that um, that there are that there are more people with top secret security clearances in the United States than there is the population of the metropolitan DC area. Um, that's staggering. That's that's absolutely staggering. Um, it stands to to reason to me that 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 can't that can't be a recipe for 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 a well oiled um, bureaucratic machine. It's going to cost a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of labour to maintain such a system. Um, so just in relation to good governance, efficiency, spending taxpayers' money money wisely. Um, 
it, it's dangerous to have too much too much secrecy. It's labeled in the church committee report too, and they ask William Colby if they can publish their budget. And there's a section that I, I have a screenshot on my phone. I'm pretty sure I could find it and read it here if you want me to. But it's they were looking through and they go, What about your organizations that you have the money being funneled into kind of like offshore accounts but they're private organizations or just separate organizations no tie no name linked in with the cia or anything like that but they're owned by the cia or they're heavily funded by the cia they're like there's just organ i was like i would have never thought to stick your money in an account under not your name or not your business name but just put it somewhere else and that's what they were doing and they go how many of these do you have i think they only listed like 12 and I was like, but what's the money? How much money was there? They never disclosed that either. They didn't disclose the full budget. They didn't disclose any of that, which is a lot of people bring up when Kennedy, I guess he said a he said a quote about the CIA about taking down their budget. Um, and he quote about scattering the CIA to a thousand pieces and dust to the wind. That was a quote that he had, and nobody knows where, whether it was published in a newspaper or someone overheard him say that because it gets taken out of context sometimes. And I go, well, I mean how much money was going in there? What was the plan and the overall run of it? And I think if you look at the way the country was going, the best thing ever is listening to those Nixon and Kennedy debates. Those are two completely different people. You see Nixon, which is probably more in line with what the country was like for so long. And then you see Kennedy on a completely different mindset where he was saying things that sound commonplace today, but it was so new back then. And Nixon's all like, we can't look soft on communism and all this type of stuff. And it's just like, that's how our country was going for a very long time. Every action of like Radio Free Europe, that was a CIA thing and so much propaganda. And I'm like, I, if you can understand like what happens also when like you understand trying to justify your secrecy. My thing is, is that the people that end up getting involved in these projects and they want their names redacted out. I go, I think at this point now you accept the cost that if you have to or if you're only going to hop on board if your name's going to be blacked out you probably know it's a bad thing so when it does get exposed just from a historian standpoint it would be so infuriating for me if i'm trying to put the pieces together of something and you got more redactions and you don't know who the specific person's name is where i go you had to know i mean alan dulles was in charge of mk ultra he probably didn't know everything that was going on but he knew what the basic template of the program was and then even talking to Stephen Kinzer about Sidney Gottlieb, who was in charge of that mm, program. Of course, of course. He just said Sidney Sidney Gottlieb is the weirdest guy I've you know I've ever read about. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, he, when he went home, he had a garden. He uh just he was just read poetry. His wife talked about he would never talk about work, and he was just like a completely different person than the horror stories you hear. And I go, how was he viewing it? And he goes. Well, the CIA said, we're going to give you a bunch of money for research on LSD and you get to do whatever really you want to do with it. So he was going, what things can I do with it? He wasn't thinking I'm going to torture humans. He thought, oh, my God, it's like the Nuremberg trials. I don't think those Nazis really were worried about like how people are going to feel about it. They were just like, look at all the money we got to do whatever the hell we want. Yeah, it's it's like uh, it's like Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, isn't it? When he says to uh, to the, you know, Dr. Hammond, you know, the owner of the park, he's like, you've been so busy building din dinosaurs that you haven't actually stopped to reflect on the question of whether you should <laughs> be building dinosaurs. And of course, the other thing on, on too much secrecy is when there's too much secrecy, it, it can prevent organizations, can prevent uh, agencies from actually learning lessons from mistakes and, and failures. Remember, um, agencies like the CIA are not only secretive when it comes to the American public, 
there's secrecy within their own organization. You know, they often operate in compartments. It's known as compartmental, complex, my brain's gone to the compartmentalization. You know, the need to know principle, which means that, you know, you're working on something with maybe three or four people in your particular office or suite, and the people next door, separated by a wall, haven't got a clue what's going on. When you have secrecy to that extent, taken to the nth degree, Arguably, it, pre it prevents the, the, the appropriate post-mortems from being carried out that would, would actually enable the agency not to repeat or rehash some of the failings and errors that have occurred in, in, in their past. So, yes, there, there, there are problems to secrecy, but, but as I sort of uh, inserted that caveat at, at the beginning, um, equally, there, there are merits to it, certainly. I think with that area of secrecy, there just needs to be a connection with people. Um, in the public, not just on the aspect of transparency, but I bet so many things about like communism, understanding that a little bit more, um, how the government's viewing it compared to how the public views it. Uh, what I mean, even with COINTELPRO, with invading the Black Panther Party, I go, when you're looking at like now there's domestic terrorism going on board, which is what Hoover was labeling that, I go, I feel like there needs to be a connection in some aspects because you seem like you might be a little bit too gapped away from the way the public is viewing these figures as well. Like, I mean, I, I, it seems like every document I read, everybody's either an FBI informant or a CIA informant, or I'm like, Jesus, why didn't, and I would have said this a long time ago, why can I not be a CIA agent? You know, why can't I be an FBI agent? Why can't I be picked out of a university? And then hearing Vern's story about being picked out of on college campuses and watching him tell his story. And then towards the ending, he's tearing up on me. And I'm like, what's wrong? He's like, I spent 47 years in a federal prison and then just I'm out with no explanation. And he wrote a book on it, which is like, obviously, it's going to tie all right back into something you wrote as well, too. How do people who are in the agency able to be able to talk about these secrets? How are they able to write memoirs? How are we able to have biographies by famous? I, I doubt they're exposing secrets, obviously, but there's like things in Alan Dulles's biography that, I mean, if you're a real hardcore government is ruining your entire life and everything you've failed to accomplish, including that date with whoever Patty Jenkins from third grade that didn't work out. I don't know that it's all the CIA's fault. That's how some people view some things where I start going anything that Alan Dulles writes, you can take completely as a, this is him saying, this is the smoking gun. And there are quotes like, um, I don't know if it's Alan Dulles or not, but he talked about every assassination besides Abraham Lincoln has been done by a lone nut. And that gets brought up a lot in the Kennedy assassination where I'm like, it's not evidence. It's definitely suspicious, sure, but also was Alan Dulles just messing around with whoever was going to read this later? I mean, you can watch so many interviews with the guy, and he does not seem like he wants to be there or wants to give you any advice. I mean, the one guy asked Alan Dulles, have you ever done anything bad in your life? And he hits his pipe, and I'm doing it like this because he likes it like he's – to me, it looks like smoking a bowl, but he's he likes his pipe, and he goes like that. He goes, no, and he says it just like that, and I'm like – Dude, that's a smoking gun right there. If you're going to be a hardcore conspiracy theorist, that's you being a piece of crap because he literally does that. And even in the interviews, he's like fixing the books on the shelves in the background. Yeah, the I, I, think he, I think that was deliberate from Dulles. Actually. Maybe I'm being conspiratorial here, but 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 this sort of persona that that that, that Dulles had and I, I, I think it was quite deliberate. He wanted to pitch himself as sort of this avuncular college professor you know puffing away on his smoke and it was a disarming mechanism you know whenever um whenever journalists would ask him awkward questions he'd start playing around with his bookshelf or puffing away on on his his pipe there i think it was his way of 
you know, subtly and covertly shutting down uh, conversation. That I, I wouldn't put it. I wouldn't put it past Alan Dulles to um, to to have done that. But I think I think on the, on the memoirs, I, I think one frustration that, that scholars would have, one frustration that even a lot of CIA officers would have, who who maybe have entertained the the, the, the prospect of of saying something publicly, uh, is that of a two tier system. I mean, you've already mentioned that, that Alan Dulles, his book, The Craft of Intelligence in 63, uh, was published. Um, there's a, I think the frustration is there's been a two-tier system. Um, most directors have, um, since Dulles, been able to write best-selling accounts and make a lot of money from these best-selling accounts. And uh, very rarely, if ever, have these directors been hauled over the coals for some of their uh, revelations and some of their indiscretions in, in, in memoirs. Very few of them um, have, ha, ha, have, have been given a kind of a rough time by the CIA's uh, Publications Review Board, the body that sort of goes through manuscripts line by line, looking out for... Um, for things that might um, might damage U.S. national security, but then you compare that with um, with lesser mortals, with the rank and file, with you know um, you know people much lower down the food chain, and um, their experience of getting in getting into print has um, been much more of a bumpy road, much much more of a bumpy road. You know, quite often their their manuscripts when they their draft manuscripts when they receive them back from the publications review board are littered with red pen um dozens of of, of redactions hundreds if not thousands of redactions of, of words and bits of text often with 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 no justification um the case of, of william colby actually springs to mind here so um 74 75 76 the book came out in 75 so Bill Colby publishes the um, publishes his memoir Honorable Men, and then um, admittedly gets gets that reviewed by the by the pre publication review board. Uh, a year later, that book is then translated into uh, into French. Uh, a French edition of that memoir is published, but Colby forgot forgot was negligent. Either him or his publisher forgot to send uh, that French edition to the publications review board. Nothing happens to Colby. Nothing happens for this, you know, flagrant violation of the rules, you know, of, of all the people who should know that he needed to send that to the publications review board for security vetting. You'd think it would be Bill Colby. Nothing happens to Colby, but then there have been cases in, in, in the years uh, following, I'm thinking specifically here about the case of, of, of Frank Snepp and his sort of, uh, his anti-Vietnam War CIA memoir, Decent Interval, he too um, did not send his manuscript to the Publications Review Board. Uh, and the CIA went after him big time for that. Exactly the same indiscretion as, 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 as Bill Colby. And, and ultimately, a judge ended up siding with the CIA and ruled that um, for the sin of not, not, not sending his memoir to the PRB, um, all profits, what the judge described as, quote, ill-gotten gains, all profits from the book, all ill-gotten gains, would go to the US Treasury and not to Frank Snap. Um, God, it's like not paying your taxes. I feel bad for the guy from Blade. And then and then Schnepp is subject to, like, 
IRS uh, intrusion into his financial dealings every every year for the rest of his life. Um, so you compare the two cases, and it, it, it's hard not to conclude there that that there has been a, a sort of a um, a bias in the reviewing process towards the great and the good, compared with lesser mortals like snap and i find that frustrating and as actually i'm sure a, a lot of people at cia do as well it's interesting to me like if you look at like the number of people that wanted to uh, j edgar hoover to retire i'm like how come nobody just doesn't want to fire him like i mean for if you really want him to retire it was all about retiring him and i was like either he has like such a presence where it was like they couldn't get rid of him um unless he did retire like nobody could throw him out. I mean, his FBI respected the hell out of him. And I think that's what you need in your director. If you work for an agency, you should respect. But there is so much stuff that goes on. Have you ever heard of a Blue Skies memo before? No, no. I mean, I, I'm familiar with, with with Blue Skies thinking, but but not the memo. Sorry, sorry. So it was came out in the Clinton um, after the whole like 9-11. And uh, I don't know if it was Clinton or Bush. I think it was Bush then. Yeah, because Bush is 9-11 thing. But it came out it's on wikipedia when you look it up it's from that time period a document came out and it was called the blue sky memo which is to make sure everything appears like if it were blue skies and it's like that's on wikipedia for any average i'm pretty sure it's probably the same thing with blue sky thinking but i i start going i mean how many stuff is written down like that's the thing for me is like there's some documents that i see and i love looking through the documents man i don't know what it is it's not the conspiratorial side of me i just think it gives a better aspect on history uh, especially like relationship with organized crime. I'd like to know if anybody wrote a book about that or even talked about that briefly. Cause one name I did find on the assassination plots for Castro was Sidney Gottlieb. And I'm like, that guy's MK ultra. Why is he in doing the whole, well, he made a powder that to put in, um, Castro's beard cream or whatever to make his beard fall out. And I go now the total number goes like 634 with Castro trying to assassinate him. I've only read probably 50 or 75. I know someone, I think his secretary or whoever Castro was second in power was wrote a book on his name's Fabian Escalante. I think um, he's the one that says 634. Now you can specifically tell which are mob related hits and which are CIA related hits. A beard falling out is a character assassination. That is not mob related at all. But then there's poison powders, there's exploding cigars, but the poison pills went to Sam Giancana of organized crime. And I go, there's no way a mob guy, unless his IQ was way higher than ever, you know, to be able to think of how do you make a poison? They were delivered, but they never, you know, uh, put them in effect or anything against Castro. He ended up returning them back, but they were delivered to Sam Giancana to go do all that stuff. But there was so much stuff in there where I just go, is anybody talking about the relationship between organized crime or just crime and mafia figures with the CIA, whether it's involvement in Cuba or other foreign relations? The, to the public, what I just said would have been a conspiracy theory if there isn't a whole bunch of documentation to back that up. But we don't think about our look at the movies. The FBI was heroes and the mob were villains. And I've talked about that on here before, too, where it's like, look, it's subtle things like that, where I go their PR system. Um, There's a guy out there, uh, Dirk. For, I think his name's Dirk. I forgot his last name. He wrote a book about Hoover called The God and Devil Myth of J. Edgar Hoover. And it was there was a God myth out there that Hoover never did any wrong. He was a, you know, a Boy Scout. Basically, he was this guy who purist everything. And then as soon as that myth came out from the FBI's PR department, there was an opposite creation from the public, and it was the devil myth. 
And these two countered each other in the public and people got to kind of sort out which is the most, you know, which one do you agree with the most, which to me was interesting because it's like, I mean, they knew some stuff about Hoover. Sure. We, we knew much later, but the way that they try and display their image, it goes back to that question. There's a new again. book out, a uh, new biography of Hoover out, isn't there, called G-Man. Uh, I, I, I confess, I forget the name of, of, of the author. It's, it's, it's a female scholar from one of the big Ivy Leagues. I think it might be Yale. And uh, it's been seriously well received, um, like glowing, glowing, glowing views in, in like New Yorker, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, almost certainly worth, uh, well, definitely worth a read. It's called Hoover's G-Man. I, I think it's just called G-Man and then colon a new biography of Jacob Hoover, something like that. Hmm. I'll have to check it out. I've heard the name before, but I know there's a book by Kurt Gentry, I think, that wrote something about Hoover as well, too. There's a lot of stuff like Hoover's – and uh, I've had three different people talk about um, the FBI invasion into movies, but Hoover's name's on there. Like Hoover goes to the movies or something like that, where to me that's just interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, so, I mean the CIA was fairly late to the game of 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 of, of the military industrial complex if, if you want to call it so the cia established um its first entertainment liaison office in 1994 so and you know within the office there would be an entertainment liaison officer and the job of the entertainment liaison officer would be to go to hollywood to pitch possible movies to directors screenwriters script script writers it would be the job of the liaison officer to say to filmmakers, you know, would do you need some help? You know, do you need some help? We can we can review the scripts for you. Um, Who went to Frank Olson's son when he made that documentary about his dad? That's what I want to know. Yeah, um, but 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 the CIA was you know at least forty or fifty years behind the Pentagon here. Pentagon had been uh, working with Hollywood going back to, I mean, going back to the days of John Wayne and, and Green Beret. I mean, it's like the ultimate collaboration. Um, but the FBI under Hoover as well, going all the way back to the nine, you know, almost the late 1930s, 1940s, had had very close ties with um, with, with 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 filmmakers, all in an effort. Um, so they would claim, uh, of course, to, to ensure that filmic representations were accurate. Of course, unofficially, uh, it's long been held, and I think that there's something to that, that the real rationale was to, was to try to sort of ensure that um, nothing too negative uh, was being said about, about the FBI. And the Pentagon, you know, the Pentagon with its filmic relations, it has a great carrot, doesn't it, that it can dangle to filmmakers. You know, it can say if if you let us um, if you let us vet your scripts, if you let us on the set of your 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 productions, uh, look what we can provide in return. We can provide aircraft carriers. We can provide uh, F-18s that Tom Cruise can fly around in and look really really cool. Uh, we can even allow Tom Cruise to like. Uh, you know, flout the rules of engagement and fly like 10 foot off the ground in the Nevada desert. We can do that for you if in return. And Tom Cruise looks really cool in that film. And I love I love Top Gun Maverick, by the way. But we can do that for you if you let us uh, look at the script, if you let us police the script. It's it's a hell of a carrot to offer. And, and the CIA has a similarly attractive carrot that it can offer as well. You know, it can say to the makers of the latest 
espionage, intelligence, yarn. If you let us look at your script, we will let you film um, in, in, in the lobby of CIA headquarters. You know, you, you can have uh, Alec Baldwin or whoever it is, Chris Pine, walk across the CIA seal. You, you, you can film next to the CIA memorial wall. You can film next to the, next to the statue of OSS director Bill Colby. Uh, and a lot of, um, for a lot of filmmakers, this is a, dare I say, it, it's kind of a Faustian pact that they're happy to sign because it it it, it, it increases the 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 verisimilitude of the films. It makes them look more realistic. It makes them look look more 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 accurate. Um, the downside is to what extent does it ultimately blunt the critical edge that might otherwise have come out in the film when you've got. CIA officers, CIA public affairs officers vetting scripts. Again, we never hear anything about NSA. I'm telling you, man. I've look. That's what. That's my interest. NSA. If I was going to write a book about something, to be about the NSA because they have some really good documentation on the FBI and the CIA. Where I'm like, whoa, what the hell? Who's who's patrolling the NSA here? But when do you think the CIA hit their? I would say their peak. You know, before it started going downfall. Like if it, you don't have to just limit it. Like I would say their peak of like what they were doing, like obviously not the best of what the CIA was, but just when they were involved in the most stuff before they either got caught. I wouldn't just say Watergate. I know people bring up stuff with like 9-11. I know people bring up a lot of stuff where I just go, I mean, we know that the originally it was the OSS and then they created the CIA and then it goes off from there. But there's plenty of moments you can take as like this is their peak. Like I would say Cuba, organized crime aspect, the CIA working with the mob. I think that's a uh, giant point right there that would just shatter the doors off people but then you get into like the church committee and you start going okay well if you look at the church committee when did it start with college campuses i mean over 44 college campuses and i think it's two hundred thousand dollars back then but then it's way more than it if it was now in money um where did where was that money going towards and then universities and then you got a hundred thousand dollars in mexico that still hasn't been explained where i'm like what's what are we doing in mexico so it's like there's a lot of moments throughout history whether it's the 60s whether it's the 70s i mean fbi during the vietnam war thing they created a fake magazine called the rational observer and they deployed it on college campuses just so kids would see it and be like, oh, wait, they're blowing the Vietnam thing out of the water. It's not. No, it's not as what we're all thinking it is. And they're trying to stop activists. And we learned later that it was all a lie. But there were people even today when I talked to an author about it who was interviewing people that are like in their 90s. And he's like, you know, that was a fake magazine, right? They're like, it was? And it was like, holy crap. It's like, to me, I started looking at everything like, is it fake? I don't know. It says made in China. So I'm going to go with it's real. My, my, I'll, I'll, I mean, I, I won't be able to give a, 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 a truly accurate answer to your question of, you know, when, when was the CIA running it? When, when was the CIA running the most covert operations? But, but I can provide a sort of a, just a, an, an amusing and anecdotal response. Um, so Richard Helms, as, as I mentioned earlier, published his memoir in posthumously published his memoir, A Look Over My Shoulder, in 2003. And if you go to the Booth Center for Family History at Georgetown University, you've got the Richard Helms papers there, heavily redacted, as, as you would expect. But one of the parts of the collection that, 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 that hasn't been weeded to death are the papers relating to the production of his uh, of his memoir, a, a look over my shoulder, and it includes a lot of uh, Helms's um, drafts 
drafts of, 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 of the book, draft chapters, draft materials, some of the research materials he was collecting. And there was three really interesting bits in there, there there's, that I'll tell you about. So there was, there, was, there was one of the early draft chapters of CIA covert action in the 1950s. So you take possession of that. And then you compare that to the very same chapter that, that ended up being published. And it's interesting to compare the two because obviously the first, the draft that's in the archive now, declassified, was obviously what was, you know, that, that was Helms's unconscious, unconscious thoughts. You know, he probably wasn't self-centering a lot at that stage. He was just getting it down on paper. Whereas the... Um, Whereas obviously the, 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 the chapter in the published book in question, that's gone through the pre-publication pre review process. In the draft, in the draft, there's, 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 there's a sentence there where uh, uh, Helms admits that in the 1950s, the CIA um, had run, and he uses the word, thousands of covert actions, thousands of covert actions. When you then compare that, when you then compare that to, I think I've got it up on my, yeah, here it is. When you compare it to the very same chapter in the published version, dozens, it's, the word dozens is used. And the really fun bit, the really fun bit is in the same declassified Helms papers at Georgetown, you also, so Helms wrote this with uh, a coadjutor, a guy called uh, William Hood, who's, who's, who's been a ghostwriter or, 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 or writing partner for a number of CI directors who, who publish books. There's a really interesting letter in there where Bill Hood writes to uh, Richard Helms. And Bill Hood says, uh, I've, ju I've just been looking at your, your draft chapters, uh, 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 Dick really enjoying the material, but I'd just like to draw your attention to something that, that could prove controversial if publicly acknowledged. And that's the bit in the chapter where you say that in the 1950s, the CIA was running thousands of covert actions. Uh, as I'm sure you will, you will realise, Dick, let, 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 let's adjust the wording here and put dozens instead. Dude, that the mind, the mind boggles as, as to the true sort of reach and, 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 and extent and influence of what, what the agency has been doing. Well, it's like the best thing with like legal writing. When you start reading it, you're like, you guys aren't like there's a I'm not trying to get conspiratorial here. But like I said, a lot of my knowledge comes from the Kennedy assassination, which is the, Os the Oswald 201 file. There was an interview with Oswald and the CIA and the CIA said we have no interview. And it's from like a research review board in like 1990. Or yeah, 1995, I think it was. And they sent a couple months later, they sent a message back saying, we have no interview from a person that fits the description you described. And then they sent back a month later saying, well, we have an agent named Demencia that says that a guy who worked at a radio factory in Minsk in 1959, 1959 interviewed at your facility. And then we found out just recently, well, it's been out there for a little while now, but it's about Oswald's 201 file. His interview with the CIA is real. Now, they weren't lying and saying they didn't have one. They just never classified it as a debrief. They classified it as something else. They never fully – and the guy who did the debrief goes, that was a debrief. I've done thousands of them. That was a debrief. And I go, they're not lying to you. They're just changing the wording, and it gets – and that's filing Freedom of Information Act requests. I mean, Stephen Kinzer, when he did his work for MKUltra, he would request the exact document, everything that they needed. And then they would send it back. We have no knowledge or about this document, or we cannot confirm or deny this. And then he would have to rephrase it in a lesser way. And then bam. And most of his documents came from, I think, uh, 
garage that he had to go visit. Like there was a guy who had a bunch of MK ultra documents in his garage. And that's like a bunch of stuff that started, like, I mean, happens through these operations as well, too. Someone finds it in somebody's basement or, oh, yeah, and that's nuts yeah, yeah. to me. The uh, Sam Adams, CIA analyst Sam Adams, uh, he, he was controversial in, in the 70s because he was very, very skeptical about um, CIA estimates and, and assessments pertaining to, to, to the Vietnam War. And unbeknownst to the CIA, he, um, he, 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 he kept his sort of scribblings uh, that he, he scribbled on a piece of paper. He kept them, he kept them buried. He kept them buried in his back garden. And then eventually I think he dug them up and he moved them to, to a, to a patch of land just outside of a Virginia farm. And then like 20 years later, uh, after he passed away, you know, the CIA is sort of tipped off that well, did did you, did you know that one of your ex employees had has got all these sort of scribblings six feet down under the ground in some sort of West Virginian farm and they have to sort of send their guys around to go and collect this stuff. It's 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 surprising what material you you that, that conceivably could still be out there actually be beyond the control of 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 the agencies themselves. When I, when I, taking it back a little bit to Nixon. I mean, did you come across anything that changed your perspective through what I guess the historical lens shows? Like, like I said, I've, I've talked to people who have been very critical of Nixon and people that have been uh, apologists for Nixon, not even an apologist, but just on Nixon's side. Like Jeff Shepard showed new documents that Nixon had been targeted, which in, in my opinion, I think that's pretty clear through history, but nobody can see past. They all think Nixon's like a corrupt, evil guy. And I don't think he should have been president. He definitely abused his power for sure. Um, but there's just a lot where it's like nothing's ever just a hundred percent one person's thing. It's a kind of combination of uh, events. Yeah, I mean, I, I I won't steal my thunder too much here because um, I, I'm sort of you know I'm working on this this book at the moment, and you know we'll have you back. We'll have you back. Yeah, I'm hopeful then come back in in a few years and and really give you the the full story. But I mean, there's no doubt. I think even a lot of Nixon loyalists, you know, real Nixon acolytes you know, would grudgingly concede that Nixon was fairly par paranoid, uh, incredibly insecure, had a huge inferiority complex, especially vis-a-vis -vis the East Coast establishment. Um, they would acknowledge grudgingly that, 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 you know, Nixon saw enemies all around him, real and imagined. I think one of the things that is coming out of the, um, the stuff that I've been writing up is that, you know, Clearly, that paranoia exploded and 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 mushroomed for for, for for Nixon. That said, when you look at um, some of the difficulties he experienced with the CIA, um, some of the obstacles that were that that that, that were put that were, were sort of erected by 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 the agency, there are going to be put it this way: there are going to be instances in 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 my book where where I'm showing um, some sympathy for Nixon. Where you know my thesis is actually that there's kind of no smoke without fire here. You know, I'm not I'm not going to be suggesting that you know the the CIA was sort of set against Nixon from day one and there was a big conspiracy here. But 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 there's certainly instances in the story that I'm telling where I'm thinking, God, you know, why did the CIA do that? That 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 you know, I can see why Nixon would be upset in that moment. I can see why uh, I I can see why he'd be angry. Do you think that there's extents that the agency will go to protect their own reputation? 
Um, doesn't need to be like necessarily like the most nefarious attempts, but there's like a lot of propaganda and stuff you can see. And even looking at writers that are writing books, I mean, not saying that they took it out any writers, but there's enough evidence to support vague threats. I, 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 I think even CIA official public affairs officers would, 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 would tentatively agree with that premise, actually. I, I think they would tentatively, tentatively agree with the premise that the CIA's reputation needs a degree of protection because, I mean, what, what, what do intelligence agencies do? Well, they do a lot of things, but, but, but right at the heart of their work is, is the work of case officers overseas. And um, case officers have a very, very difficult job. They might be working in an official capacity, you know, official cover, or they might be Knox, non-official cover. But what do they ultimately do overseas? They go overseas to try to convince people to betray their country, to pass secrets to the United States. Now, if the reputation of the CIA is that of um, mindless assassins, if the reputation of the CIA is that of an agency that can't keep its secrets, if the reputation of the agency is that of an agency that breaks its promises, if um, the reputation of the agency is that of um, an agency that um, will recruit assets, gut them for, in for, for, for intelligence and then just send them to the walls, well, that's going to make the life of a case officer infinitely harder so I, 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 you know perhaps counterintuitively to you and, and some of your listeners and, and viewers I, I think the CIA has to be ha, ha, has to take its reputation seriously and it has to take steps to try as much as possible to 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 protect its reputation because its ability to collect intelligence overseas absolutely relies on that I mean, imagine, imagine right now if you were, if you were an Iraqi or, 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 you know, someone in Syria and you got a tap on the shoulder and they said, um, you know, would you mind working for the CIA? And that very morning you picked up the New York Times and the headline was, um, you know, CIA throws to the wolves some of its assets that it's been recruiting in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last 10 years. And this is why Biden's very hasty withdrawal of, of, of Afghanistan was, was very controversial anyway. But one of the reasons why it was controversial was that so many of those loyal Afghans who, who'd been promised, promised sanctuary and asylum by the United States in the United States um, were suddenly betrayed. You know, promises were broken and... Um, they were left to the mercy of, 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 of an angry enemy. Um, as I see it, that Biden's decision there did enormous damage to, to American credibility in the eyes of, of allies and American partners and potential American allies, partners and, and assets. So, yeah, I, I think that the, the reputation has to be protected to a degree. And I, and I think I think even e, 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 even even CIA public officials, public affairs officials would acknowledge that. It's even with um if you look at a lot of the Cold War spies, you know, if they got caught or something, the CIA goes, we don't know them, and it was just like that's kind of what I wanted to really like, like I said in the well, beginning. Gary, about, Gary Powers, Gary Gary Powers. Well, yeah. even um what is oh, God, I'm blank on his name, Carl uh, Kochner, Carl Kochner. Uh, I just talked to Benjamin Cunningham who wrote a whole book called The Liar about him. But um even take it back to another example, Vern, 
hearing his story and you know he's spent all those years in prison i go well why didn't the cia help you out they didn't do anything for him they just cut off ties with him he eventually became like we actually he's a rogue agent or something and then he wasn't even doing anything bad it was just he got caught or got close to caught and someone tipped off somebody and next you know castro was looking for him there's a bunch of weird stuff where it was just like look what about the people that are on college campuses like i said in the beginning it was so cool if a cia guy came up to me and said you get to be part of the cia you get to do some minor stuff, but then do you necessarily know the risk of what happens if you get caught, if you get implemented overseas or something, if they decide to use you for another operation, there's no safety net for you. And it's like, is that risk necessarily explained to people when they join? It wasn't to Vern. It wasn't to Carl. It wasn't to a couple of people that were caught that I've read stories about. And it's kind of like, that's the real thing. And there's a term out there. You probably heard of going native. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a real thing too. I mean, it's Arabia. Yeah. Yes. When you hear something like that, it's like you just, you realize the intelligence world is definitely really complex. And to me, it's a hell of interesting. It's just everything about it is just fascinating to me. But there's just a lot of things where I feel like I understand the secrecy thing. But if they're working for you, do you need secrecy against the people in your own division as well, too? I mean, I feel like a lot of people wouldn't be doing the things that they would be doing if they understood the risk with it. And that's where it kind of leads into the realm of accountability. Like Richard Helms, I think he probably was doing a lot of stuff that wouldn't have been accepted in the public's eyes. But I mean, did he know it was wrong? Probably. Did he know his name wasn't going to get recorded? Probably. So I think there's a little bit of that where even when I talk to Blakey about his work on the HSCA, I'm looking through documents and I go, when they tell you, the CIA tells you we're going to have an off the books dinner with Blakey to discuss some of the things he's requesting for. And I ask him, what were they requesting things for? And he's older. He's like, I don't know. And I'm like, was a jam wave? Because that's mentioned in this document. And he goes, possibly it's been so long and i'm like okay then the new release comes out and there's 60 pages on jm wave and i start going okay so there's things you kind of start pairing up where it goes it might not be mk ultra bad but it's just a couple of things it's like really weird what they choose as secrecy and i think when we classify that term a little bit at least for like what the church committee probably should have really emphasized is classifying that term of what's national security and what's risk and all that I get it from a uh, intelligence perspective. You don't want, you know, if you have names that get published and they're overseas right now being active or something like that in another country. Yeah, that, that's a red line for me. I, I wouldn't, um, uh, I wouldn't condone that um, at all. Um, there, there have been people in history who who have con- condoned that. Uh, Philip Agee being being one of them. So this was a, a CIA officer who who didn't like what he saw, who um, left the agency. There are very 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 strong hints that he didn't just leave the agency he walked straight into the arms of of soviet intelligence very very strong hints there but he um he started publishing names he he started publishing names in places like covert action bulletin um sort of very left-leaning expose type um counterculture publications and when he was heavily criticized for this he said i don't care you know, CIA officers, by and large, are overseas doing bad stuff. It's good that their names are exposed. And he was really callous in the extreme. You know, he 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 openly said if 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 these publications lead inadvertently to um, a knock uh, or a case officer being thrown out of the country, his ideal um, outcome was that by exposing the names um an intelligence officer would be thrown out of the country in which they're 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 operating but he was even cold in the extreme he said even if um 
even if an exposed intelligence officer uh, ended up being incarcerated or, or 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 worse still, you know, fingernails ripped out. I have very little sympathy. Um, that's too cold. That's too cold. And and actually, um, AG did a lot of damage to what I would call sort of positive openness. So after the church hearings, we see some positive openness. We start to see um, we see the creation of permanent uh, congressional. Uh, committees on on intelligence oversight in both the House and and the Senate, and there's a lot of public sympathy for that. But the moment when AG started doing what he did and saying what he did, I think that public sympathy for the um, for, for openness just started to wane a little bit, especially by Christmas 1975. So a CIA station chief in Athens, a guy called Richard Welsh, um, he was he he went to a Christmas Eve? Yeah, Christmas Eve, or maybe it was the 23rd. I'll say Christmas Eve. He went to a Christmas Eve party at the nearby American ambassador's residence. And when he came home that evening and he was about to go into his own residence, he was gunned down by by, by Greek terrorists. And it transpired that um that his name had been revealed in, in numerous publications uh in, in the weeks and months leading up to his assassination. Um that was a real turning point, actually. You know, public opinion was very much in favour of greater openness, greater transparency, subjecting the CIA to greater public scrutiny. And then Welsh dies in horrible, horrible circumstances. He was gunned down in front of his wife. In fact, it was good. By all accounts, Welsh was a good guy. In fact, it was. I've read a few articles on this, and on the night in question, such you know was a decent chap. He was. Um, as his car came up to the gate, the gate to his his residence, rather than sort of call the servant out to sort of open the gate for him, or ra rather than ask his his limousine driver to open the gate, um, Welsh just got out the back seat himself and opened the gate, and the 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 the, um, the assassins took took that as the opportunity to gun him down. So it, it was a shame because all of the sort of positive openness, as as you might call it. That, that was going on and ended sort you know was largely killed off by the welsh welsh assassination um yeah sort of un, unintended consequences of, of of too much openness there there's definitely a lot of things you can't think about when you do do something but i think there needs to be a safety net for a lot of people like if you're going to expose something or if you're going to want positive openness you kind of have to understand okay what's something that you could rationally do that would probably not cause any harm or probably would have been a better plan than the original history books. Sick MK Ultra. That's the most difficult one to talk about, but I want to pick that example. If they were willing participants, if they were people that were getting funded a million dollars, $2 million, $3 million to be experimented on with LSD and they signed a waiver and said, I'm 100% for this, I don't control anybody's life. I can't stop somebody from smoking a cigarette. Like where society accepts that. It's the unwitting bit, isn't it? The unwitting bit is the one where it's kind of like that's where the extreme is. And I think like there's double standards and I don't really like the double standards, which is people are the public over in the United States are happy or not caring about the problem if it's happening in another country. But then when it comes onto their land, they get upset about it. And I go, well, hold on a second. You kind of have to look at what is happening domestically that you don't agree with. If it's happening overseas, you choose. 
if they're wiretapping and you're okay with it happening overseas on spying on someone, I think at this point now we've all accepted these are wiretaps. Um, or at any point they can check in and listen on them if they want. I mean, for God's sakes, I got an advertisement for, I forgot, a new TV or something like that. And I was just talking about it with a friend at work. And I was like, yeah, I get a new TV eventually. And then I get an ad for it. Okay, so it's listening to me. We all accept that now. But then spying on people's mail, does the public domestically accept that? Then it's okay to happen overseas. But then it gets into the covert regime change, the propaganda, all that. If you don't like that happening to you and your family, then you don't want it happening overseas. And obviously there's things where there's a sliding scale of what's good propaganda. There's very minuscule propaganda that I think is okay. If you're going to influence FBI movies to make FBI look good, I couldn't care less. I'm sorry. I just don't. But then if you're talking about things of spying and blackmailing people and doing all these types of stuff, well, that's ethical concerns I have problems with. And I think if you can get the public to the discussion, much of those people that are – and I trust me, I've talked to a lot of them through the Kennedy assassination – are very anti-government, intelligence agencies need to pay, a lot of stuff. In some spots, I agree, but in some spots, I go, well, what else is going on outside of the bubble that you're focused in? Look at other – countries and their intelligence services. And I think when I spoke with Nigel West, you know, he kind of showed a little bit of that. And even John Ranley uh, exposed a little bit of that for him. Great authorities on the subject. So, but they're also in the deep heart of the intelligence community. So they also, they understand like, it's not just one specific government. It's like every government. And I think like a lot of people get really stuck in like an echo chamber of it's only 100% the CIA or it's 100% the FBI or it's 100% the KGB. I'm like, look, if you really want to look at the gun that's pointed to everybody's head right now, no government's a good government in these aspects. They're all trying their best. And that's why I think I like the Cold War so much. I mean, it was a war still going on, but it was fought with stealing each other's intelligence. And to be honest, the way that they would try and gather intel is fascinating in its own. I mean, this is like straight out of spy movie type stuff where you're like, what? They did like they they would scribble on a pen and, you know, try and check people. They did all that type of stuff. I mean, that's how they have uh, Hostie's notes from the FBI agent who uh, was supposed to monitor Oswald. Like they got his notes from scribbling on the piece of paper and getting it, lifting it up off of the, the, I guess the paper he wrote on, he ripped up. And then they scribbled on the pad to see the words like an old spy tactic. And I'm like, that's to me, that's fascinating. No matter where you include it, and 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 so many of the the sort of the the technological breakthroughs of 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 the mid to late 20th century into the early 21st century stem from, you know, the cutting edge brain power of of spies. So if you think, you know, Bletchley Park, Bletchley Park was um, obviously was 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 a war winning development for the Brits and the Allied powers during the Second World War. But what took place at Bletchley Park um, ultimately emerges develops into the modern computer. You know, Colossus is is in many ways a, a prototype to to what I'm talking to you now on. You know, my 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 iMac. Um, similarly. Some of the you know the, the CIA's work with with the U two with the U two project and and high altitude um, flying at great speed, a lot of that technology, a lot of the scientific break breakthroughs there ended up being shared with the commercial airline industry. You know, revolutionizing that space, bringing us closer together, having the ability for me if I wanted to to get on a plane and see you in eight hours for a beer in Dupont Circle. Um, 
a lot of the scientific breakthroughs that that that, that came around um, the development of artificial intelligence in the 60s and and 1970s came about thanks to collaborations between uh, CIA, NSA, and 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 startups and 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 tech companies in in Silicon Valley. Yeah, and here we are now, 30, 40 years down the line, and and AI has the potential to to, to radically transform our lives, um, potentially in in an Orwellian way, and that's another conversation, or potentially in 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 some good ways as well. So. Um, yeah, no, your your interest in in your fascination with with all things spy uh, and and the sort of the 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 the, the ingenuity that, that that we often see in 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 that business is is wholly justified. I think when you look at like biographies of some directors, like even some like William Colby, and you get to see kind of their mentality and what they were able to accomplish or what they were able to talk about, even reading their own words. It gives you a better perspective in on the person or the mindset of the guy. Like even I listen to a lot of the Johnson tapes, a lot of the Kennedy tapes, a lot of the Nixon tapes, even though I cannot listen to all those because there's way more that would consume way more than a lifetime. Um, but when you hear some stuff, they bring insight better into the person. I kind of don't like this mentality of our – you need a good public speaker as a president, I feel. But I also wish the public would also disconnect from that's their professional image, and then there's a more private image where you – I heard Kennedy say the F word. I've never – and I've, I, it's, it's the best thing ever. I have, would have it on my ringtone if I could. But there's like a bunch of stuff. Johnson, I don't like the guy. I mean, just they, they love their salty locker room talk. That's I like salt. that. That's so fun to me because like hearing Johnson talking about, I need an extra couple inches in the crotch of the pants. And the guy goes, what? And he goes, uh, it feels like I'm riding a wired bike and I'm just dying laughing. And he belches too, which is like, oh God, it's just like, that's not professional at all. But seeing that kind of side of things, I mean, those tapes revealed a lot about like, and I think as the public, there is a, pressure on the government to maintain this facade of red white and blue 100 percent suit business tie and all that which i think you know professional looks is fine but we're a little bit past that like we see scandals all the time now about biden trump whoever where i start going can we get past like the whole family christian man as president and kind of move towards more of just like what are their actual policies besides what do they look like? And I, I'm not saying that to get to more like into political newer territory, but I'm just saying I feel like a lot of secrets are still kept because they feel like we can't handle half of this stuff as well, too. You know, whether it was a thing going on in another country or whether it was something that was going on like a fake magazine. I just like the reason why they don't openly come out and say, yeah, we did that is because they don't know how you're going to react. There's going to be two sides of people, people like, OK, that's fine, or people that are going to be extremely hostile towards it. Uh, 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 absolutely, and that that logic can be applied across the world and across different sectors and, and things that are going on. Imagine if, um, imagine if if Beijing, uh, imagine if the Chinese government suddenly decided tomorrow to um, to reveal to its population that its various COVID lockdowns were completely unjustified, and new scientific evidence suggests that they were a complete waste of time. You know, how would tens and hundreds of millions, you know, over a billion people react to such a revelation? They'd be, uh, they'd, they'd be on the streets, wouldn't they? It, it, that would be a that would be a secret that quite literally would almost be too too hot to handle. They would be pissed. I could tell you that. <laughs> but 
Well, I just got one last question. I think we both probably agree on this one, but when it comes to the destruction of documents, no, no, right? No, come on. From a historical standpoint, I get you got a lot of documentation. You can't keep it all, but there's like so many times I'm coming across and it's like, destroy this document when finished. Or I'm like, dude, this is a historical artifact. It doesn't matter. And I mean, it's hard. I mean, do I send a text? Is that a historical artifact now? Do I know what I'm going to be in the future? No, but still there's like real serious stuff. Like MK ultra pisses me off enough that we have barely any documentation on that, but there's like a lot of things where it's like, we got to start our destruction process of these documents. I'm like, please don't just, wait a little bit longer you know like don't do maybe get it on a zip drive i don't know is that harder I, it might be easier yeah i i i in in the work that i've done um in in a sort of academic capacity for 15 20 years i, I i've come across countless documents um where the, the the author of the letter or the um you know the the the, the even the recipient of the correspondence is sort of you know taken out their pen and they've scribbled in the marginalia burn after reading um often what's interesting though sometimes with these documents where you see the instruction burn after reading you you look at the actual content of the document and you think why why have you written that totally totally needless you know you haven't just revealed to me who was on the grassy knoll you haven't just revealed in this document that mi6 killed princess diana you know this document is basically you saying that we need more paper clips in the office. So why, therefore, have you put in the margin burn after reading or destroy after reading? And I think that speaks to um, one of the one of the cultural problems that, that have existed in the past in, in, in certain government organisations where secrecy is is just kind of a mindless reflex. Um, irrespective of whether you know the instinct is to classify you just classify it or you destroy the document irrespective of whether there is a, a genuine national security reason for that and i think that 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 secrecy is as mindless reflex that that's something that that, that, that governments and agencies need to address that, that that needs to be stamped out really you you shouldn't have the author of a of, a, of an official memo saying scribbling in the margins burn after reading when when the memo in question is sort of you know can we can we next week order more you know can we switch from nespresso coffee pods please to starbucks coffee pods this sort of stuff doesn't need classification i agree i just hope it's not codenamed or anything um i came across that reading the journals of unit 731 which if you know about that horrible uh they're way worse than the nazis but it was in japan and no 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 it's news to me sorry so there's a, like I said, why intelligence services are needed. You can actually listen to an episode of mine with I don't know, John J. Jahagan, his last name is, but uh, he wrote a book called Operation Storm, I think it was, but it was about the secret military uh, plan um, from Japan about off the coast of San Francisco, launching a, uh, with a submarine, launching a bunch of bombs with filled with 150 million fleas. I swear to you, 150 million fleas that were filled but, with bubonic oh, plague. Wow. That were filled with bubonic plague and it was called secret operations, cherry blossoms at night. And it's Ishii something is his name, but he ran a, a group called unit 731 way worse than the Nazis. And we don't talk about them. They used to lie vivisection people and then time it to see how long it would take for you to die. They used to take people's arms off and then try and attach it to the other side with no medication, just to see how long you, it would take for you to die. They used to test frostbite. 
And this is the craziest thing. They would take different temperatures of water and they would stick your hands in them. And then they would try and like either cool it down or do something with like some type of weird chemical that they had and see if how like what what was the I guess degrees that would cause frostbite. And then like if your hand would froze, you ever see the movie Snowpiercer where he sticks his arm out the probably not. No, no. Well, they would when your thing was like, I guess frostbite, they would hit it with a hammer, see if you could feel that. They would do a, a on crazy stuff. And it was like Unit 731 in their journals, they talked about a thing called logs. And you're like, well, they're up in the mountains, so maybe they're talking about log companies. No, they were talking about people as logs. And when they talked about bringing someone to a wood chipper, it was one of these things that they would experiment on. And that was something that was cleared up later. And there's a couple interviews Jay Jahagan did, and there's books out there too. People have written memoirs about Unit 731 talking about the horrible, awful things that they did i mean heads and jars that were just around the base camp to get every all the workers that were there really really scared just interrogation like not interrogation but scare tactics like that but we our history books don't really even talk about that at all which to me is fascinating because the prime example is always the nazis and i'm like hang on a second there's like way worse examples we can find but that's like code names and stuff like that so i mean i'm not saying that's more of the conspiratorial answer but i don't throw that out after reading a journal like that just as a small footnote to this conversation about documents so i i this has only had a, a little bit of coverage in the uk newspapers over the last fortnight but presumably it's a much bigger splash where, where you are in the us right now but correct me if i'm wrong but but it it, it looks like president it's come to light that president joe biden has inadvertently stashed a bunch of classified materials at his home in Del Delaware dating to when he, he was vice president. You know, uh, an hour ago, I was talking to you about two-tier systems, the great and the good getting away with it, and, and the smaller fry um, ultimately finding their way in court. They, they have to receive the full, the, the full extent of the law. What's going to happen to Biden? I strongly suspect he'll, um, he won't even get a slap on the wrist will he yeah. for that i don't buy i don't buy that one i don't buy when it happened to trump either like the they look look at lyndon johnson before he became president there was multiple scandal scandals going on with him and then as soon as he becomes president all the life magazine scandals on him drop now you could say yes it's because they know not to talk shit on the president 100 percent, that's a true but also you're telling me like they now just found a bunch and they said it, they stated found documents by a Corvette. I'm not a Biden fan and I'm not a Trump fan, but when they found this Trump Mar-a-Lago stuff, they took a picture and the picture looks so staged. I was like, government's not gonna let you take a picture of a document where it's stamped in red <laughs> secret <laughs> on the front of the document. And I just say that to people and they go, look I, here, I, look they're, here. They're like, that, I, that, that makes sense. I'm like, the government's not going to do that. The government's gonna tell you they either found something that is secret and they and that's an issue. They're not gonna take a picture of it and have it like all scattered out. Looks like the whole box just fell over. And like I said, I hate that I have to say this, but not a Trump person and not a Biden person, but people feel like if you talk trash on one, you assimilate with that category. And I'm not, I would believe more of a deep state to be hundred percent honest with you, just with capitalism, not with like, you know, all this LBJ, LBJ to my knowledge was the first and perhaps only, uh, president to inadvertently disclose, um, the, the PDB, the President's Daily Brief. There's there's a very famous photograph of, uh, and Hel Helms talks about this in, in his memoir. It's a very famous photograph of LG, LBJ in his pajamas, uh, lying in bed, reading a stack of documents. Uh, and this was a photograph, as I say, that appeared in the New York Times. I forget the precise uh, date now. 
And it transpired that the document, in, this is in the Helms memoir, the document in question was the bloody PDB. It was the PDB with code names at the top of the document. And Helms recounts in his memoirs that as soon as he and other CIA officers saw that, they immediately had to like run down to, or to pick up the phone to their security guys to change the uh, the code word material. So like LBJ had made this like, you know, faux pas doesn't even come close to describing uh, that 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 sort of um, that that indiscretion that lapse in 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 security because as Helm says, uh, almost certainly the 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 New York Times' KGB readership would have would have seen that um, silly LBJ. Um, yeah, that to me, like I said, the, those tapes reveal so much. Uh, there's a really interesting one that I can leave you with. This is there's a one between Hoover and Johnson. And they're talking about Ruby's polygraph test. And Hoover just says, uh, what is he? Oh, no. Johnson says, what does he want? And he says, well, Ruby wants a polygraph test. And he says, the truth will come out if we hook him up to a polygraph test. And he goes, do you trust him? He goes, I don't trust those polygraphs a damn bit. Now, that was in 1963. That wasn't until 2014 that the Innocence Project exposed the polygraph tests were garbage and they were fake. You cannot admit them in court. So is blood splatter analysis and a couple of other things as well, too. And I just go, how many people were wrongly convicted on a polygraph test? How many people? And it, to me, it just like it just kind of brought up another aspect of like, what were they knowing behind the works of things? Doesn't mean that they're evil. It was just kind of like they can manipulate things to get their way anytime they wanted to. It doesn't mean it has to be a necessarily a horrible, nefarious gain. But if we look at like budget spending. If you say that there's a bunch of terrorism or communism coming from this area, the government's going to be more than happy to fund you, and the public will accept that because everyone feared communism. So it was like, to me, understanding that a little bit was kind of like, damn, what could you spin to fit your story? And I'm like, oh, it's it's fantastic. But that does lead down like a really dark conspiracy rabbit hole that I'm not going down. Um, but Yeah, yeah, let's not go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> to me, I just think it's interesting when you can like look at that, and that's a important chunk of history for sure but no chris man i appreciate the time you gave me to talk man we've been talking for a little while but is there a place where people can find your books man um i i, I, I yeah um I, I guess just on amazon just uh so so the two books that um the sort of two major works that i've written to date uh, are, are widely available on amazon they would be um classified secrecy in the state in 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 modern britain um got a copy here this is all about how successive uk governments in the 20th century went about trying to stifle the writings of journalists how governments went about trying to stifle the recollections of intelligence veterans etc etc who, who wanted to write books and then um and then my more recent one, well, I say that was seven, eight years ago now, Company Confessions, Secrets, Memoirs and the CIA. That's um that's a deep dive into how the CIA has historically dealt with the challenge of its own people wanting to write books and, and blow the whistle on, on agency activities. But the good news is all of these books, you, you don't have to buy full price. They're all sort of secondhand on Amazon Marketplace and eBay for a penny now. A penny plus, you know nickels and dimes for postage and packing so postage and packaging packaging so you know pl please just buy them secondhand you know rather than rather new <laughs> well chris i'm going to link all your links in the description it's been a pleasure chatting with you and thanks for listening to this episode of out of the blank podcast